Roman Semenov is the founder of Tornado Cash. Roman, welcome to the Ethereum Cat Herders podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. So Tornado Cash is a privacy layer on top of the Ethereum blockchain. Um, why is privacy important on something like Ethereum? Uh, in traditional finance, we have all transactions private by default. If you approach someone on the street and try to ask him about his bank statement, <laughs> you probably think you're crazy. But in crypto, everything is public. You pay for coffee and waiter can see all your financial history, all your portfolio and stuff. Uh, it's pretty unusual. And if you want wide adoption, uh, we need to fix this. And couldn't things be better with that level of openness? Like, I guess, even though that's naturally the way the financial system has evolved, I mean, these days my bank sees all of my transactions in traditional finance. Like, maybe, like what is there a reason why it's specifically even better for things to be private? Uh, the whole crypto is founded on the notion that people sometimes don't trust government because they tend to, if you give some power, they tend to abuse it. Uh, so it's hard to choose who should decide uh, which transactions are private or who should see the private information. So the good solution is just to give this control in the hands of a user himself. So he can just decide who, can, who he will want to disclose this information to. That is an interesting point also with privacy. Privacy doesn't mean that everything has to be kept private. private. Someone who has a private transaction always has the ability to, to reveal or, so to speak, to show, like tip their hand on what they've done. Um, it's a lot of similar. Oh. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, it's pretty similar to like private keys, like whoever holds the private private key has control over the funds, uh, the same way with Tornado Cash, whoever holds the note controls the privacy, like in, uh, who can this information be disclosed to. Mm -hmm. um, a complaint that sometimes gets voiced on the other side of the table is that people shouldn't need to hide um, their actions if they aren't doing anything wrong, however different groups define what wrong is, perhaps. Um, is there anything, like, do you have a specific comment about the, like, well, why do you have something to hide line of arguing? Well, why the walls in the bathroom are not transparent. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, people <laughs> like to have privacy and the same with, uh, like, bank statements. If I come to the bank and ask somebody else's bank statement, they will not give it to me, even if this person doesn't have anything to hide. Like, uh, people are comfortable with having their lives private. Yeah, I, I'll admit like, I just in terms of looking at the world over the last couple of years, I'd say, especially in the COVID and post COVID world, it's been, um, I guess fascinating would be the nice way to put it. Um, but at times, I guess even kind of encroaching and horrifying to see the decisions that various empowered organizations or governments have made in terms of the level of surveillance that they've put on their citizens. Um, I don't think anyone had Canada trying to turn themselves into supervillains on their bingo card. Um, but I, I guess something that occurs to me a lot of times when I hear the question is like, but who, who gets to decide what's wrong? 
And I mean, going with a privacy first approach means that even if someone unfortunate ends up with the ability to decide what's right and what's wrong, people still naturally have privacy by default. Um, I guess uh, on that note, maybe the, the easiest place to go to from there is, are blockchains good for privacy? Like, do they make things more private, less private? Uh, they are like in the middle. So they have these wallets that are by default not connected to your real identity, but uh, it's very easy often to mess up and like uh, people interact with different uh, merchants and like even you, for example, you can purchase a ENS name. So it's easy to connect your real identity to your wallet. And from there, all the activity on the wallet is totally public, but uh, there are privacy techniques and there are, there are even whole blockchains, like entire blockchain blockchains dedicated to like private transactions. So this can be improved a lot. In general, how savvy would a user need to be? Like what, I guess what level of power user are we talking about for someone to really be able to leverage the privacy enhancing parts of a blockchain or privacy enhancing blockchains in order to actually achieve privacy? Well, honestly, right now, um user experience are not very good and users need to take care of a lot of things to stay completely private. But the goal here is to make a wallet that can do everything for the user. So uh, to make the privacy available for everyone. So you'd say right now, in order for someone to really keep themselves like in a state of privacy, it actually needs a fair level of finesse but with these primitives, you hope that we can kind of build into uh, into, into some like kind of state where it's easier for people to do naturally. Yeah, and uh, like privacy is not a like binary thing, private or not. So it can be like even small improvements are still improvements. So we can just make things better and better. Uh, it's probably not possible to achieve perfect privacy, but doesn't like it doesn't mean that we don't need to, to even try to improve it. Mm. That's, a fair, that's a fair point. Um, could you give maybe a, a high level description of what a zero knowledge proof is and how, like, why they keep on coming up in the discussions about privacy? Uh, the, the zero knowledge proofs are a way to prove uh, that, for example, something is correct without exactly revealing it. For example, uh, if you have some padlock with a code, I might want to prove you that I know the code, but I don't want to tell you the code itself. I just want to prove the fact that I know it. And so that allows us to do the same thing with the private key in blockchain as in I can prove that I could make a transaction even without making it or? Uh, yeah, so basically you prove that the transaction you've made is correct without telling anything else about this transaction. Uh, so I, it's, it's a normally signed transaction. It's just that there's parts of the transaction that are obfuscated. Yeah, so uh, you, the regular Ethereum transaction, you just sign it and the public can verify it just by comparing amount in, amount out, like that you had enough balance and stuff. With zero knowledge proof, 
it's constructed in such a way that you have only the, the fact that transaction is correct without um, with everything else is hidden so maybe this would be the best place to even start jumping into tornado itself um so tornado leverages zero knowledge proofs in order to help achieve a level of privacy and transaction there um how does tornado provide privacy to its users like how, how does tornado do what it does um, there are a few Tornado Cash versions. Uh, there is Tornado Cash Classic that uh, probably is most well known. And how it works is um, there is a, a few pools for different amounts of Ether, like a pool for one Ether, pool for 10 Ether, uh, pool for like 100. And for each pool, user can, a user can deposit this fixed amount, like 10 Ether, along with some uh, like hash. So basically user uh, generates um, Tornado Cash node that is similar to private key. So it generates some random number that only this user knows and uh, deposits ether in the pool along with hash of this number. And then when the user wants to withdraw it, he provides some proof that he owns one of the deposits without disclosing which one exactly, and Tornado Cash will release the funds to a specified address. So um, there are a bunch of deposits made from different addresses to Tornado Cash smart contract and a bunch of outputs. And it's not known how they are connected with each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, interacting with, with Tornado can be expensive. Is, it, is there a reason why the gas costs for interacting with Tornado specifically are, are high? Uh, only with Tornado Cash Classic. Yeah, deposit costs around uh, 1 million gas. It's uh, mostly because of the hash functions that are used uh, are snark friendly to make snark proofs easier, but they are more expensive on Solidity side. So the most expensive operation, uh, the smart contract needs to insert a single element into a Merkle tree. For this, it needs to calculate around like 20 hashes and they are uh, somewhat expensive. It is possible to improve it, but the smart contracts are immutable. So all those ideas go to the next version. Mm -hmm. Oh, I is there a plan to release another version of the current like fixed pool size tornado contracts? Uh, no, because uh, we already made something much better. Uh, so uh, I can talk a little bit uh, like we have a new version Tornado Cash Nova uh, that has a bunch of uh, really, really good features. So it fixes the most uh, annoying problems of Tornado Cash Classic. First of all, it gets rid of fixed amounts. So it's possible to deposit any amount inside the pool. And then it's possible to do like partial withdrawals. It's possible to do shielded transfer. So uh, shielded transfer is a transaction to another user that uses Tornado Cash Nova 2. In this case, uh, everything stays hidden, the sender, receiver, and amount. When you do partial withdrawal, of course, the amount will be visible. So uh, it goes to the regular Ethereum address, but with shielded address, like with shielded transfer, everything stays hidden. 
So, um, so maybe I'll uh, actually shift to a few questions on that. Um, firstly, I'm not sure I fully had understood the, the shielded transactions before. Um, does that mean that the sender has to have funds already present in Tornado's pools to make the transfer, but then when it's made, nobody sees where it's going from? Exactly, yeah. So there are three operations. First, uh, users deposits some funds. Uh, then they optionally can make some transfers inside the pool. So it can work as a wallet, for example. And it's possible to just withdraw. And it also gives some privacy. So uh, it can work uh, similarly to Tornado Cash Classic if you want to just deposit and withdraw. But there's also an option to hold the funds there and do transactions. It works pretty uh -huh. similar to Manera and Zcash. So the the recipient, they have the funds inside the Tornado platform, and that's where it's anonymous. Like if they pull out, it'll just be a regular Ethereum transfer from Tornado to them with like the with fields open. Is that correct? Yeah, but when they do a withdrawal, they can withdraw to a fresh, uh, newly generated Ethereum address that is not linked to their deposit address. Um, I, I would suppose also the partial withdrawal in a way is what makes the like the, the arbitrary deposit amount possible. I'll explain what I mean by that because I think that's probably a bit of a terse question. Um, I, I would assume, though I don't remember if I've actually seen this specifically written, that in the current widespread version of Tornado, which you're referring to as Tornado Classic, so there's fixed pool amounts. You mentioned like um, 0 0.1, 1, 10, or 100 ETH. And the reason there is to promote privacy. If everybody's putting in the exact same amount, then it's much harder to figure out by the fact that that same amount is leaving, which, which deposit lines up with which withdrawal. Uh, but if it's an arbitrary amount and say I put in 1.3578 um, ETH and then someone else gets 1.3578 ETH, the fact that it was sitting in this huge pool all of a sudden doesn't mean so much. Like we can just see that that amount manages to make it through to the other end and have a big suspicion that that actually is the deposit leading to that withdrawal. Um, the partial withdrawal I suspect is meant to mitigate that fear that even if I put in like some very arbitrary amount like that, the fact that someone who's withdrawing could be withdrawing from mine, but could also be withdrawing from any other deposit with more in it helps us kind of validate the, the well, it gives validation to the privacy. It makes it harder to actually correlate between the deposit and the withdrawal. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, if you deposit some very specific uh, amount, like you said, uh, you shouldn't withdraw exactly the same amount. Uh, you should split it. And the best way to use it is, is to just store some ether in the pool and withdraw as needed. Or you can even make payments. For example, you need to pay to someone and you have funds in Tornado Cash uh, pool. You can just do a withdrawal of that specific amount to uh, whoever you want to pay to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, are there any other downsides to allowing arbitrary arbit arbitrary deposit amounts? Uh, not that I can, like, I don't think so, no. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just uh, a little bit more work to implement, so we needed some more time. Mm -hmm. This is why we released the simple version first. Mm -hmm.
Oh, but, and, uh, okay. yeah, the Tornado Cash Classic is uh, we like it's not very good user experience. So uh, arbitrary amount is much much better. Mm-hmm. Um, the new version of Tornado, so Nova, I believe, also allows arbitrary asset deposit. Is that correct? And not yet. This will be uh-huh. the next version we internally call Supernova. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, uh, this is one of the main features, uh, like support of ERC20 and NFTs. Uh, but there are more features for this version. I don't think I'd known about NFTs. I'm definitely gonna, I'm definitely going to have a few questions about that. Um, in terms of arbitrary assets, though, I, can I ask you questions about how you, how you plan on doing that? Sure. Um, um, in, in terms of implementation. I'm not sure that, uh, like, to go into details, I will need like whiteboards and stuff. Uh, but in terms of implementation, is not very hard. So all the assets will be in the same privacy pool, and it will also be possible to swap between them. So if the pool supports atomic swap, you can deposit some Dai uh, privately, swap it to Ether, and then exit with Ether. So essentially the possibility of atomic swaps merges the anonymity sets of different assets. Without swaps, they would be like separate anonymity set for each asset. Mm-hmm. The price for swapping would be determined, I guess, by like an outside source, like a Uniswap Oracle, for example, that's specifically uh, Yeah, so the swap protocol would be similar to limit orders of like zero X and stuff like this. So it will depend on liquidity providers. But in terms of like transaction fees, uh, they are super low because um, the new version will use uh, layer two. Uh, interesting. So I mean, if it would be a really exotic asset, so I would imagine that based off of low liquidity in pools, it would still kind of be hard to achieve a decent amount of privacy. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, you will need someone to provide liquidity to swap to some like more popular asset. Mm-hmm. I understand. Um, super interesting. Um, I'll get back to the, the L2 point in a minute because that's, that mm-hmm. that's definitely also something I wanted to talk with you about. But um, you mentioned privacy with NFTs. Uh, so if I have a specific board ape as if, uh, and I decide like, you know, I don't want it associated with me anymore. So I want to pull it through tornado or something like that. I mean, at the end of the day, like we could just follow the ape around. No, like how, how do you provide privacy on an NFT? Uh, yeah. So how it works is you deposit ape in the pool and as long as it stays in the pool, it remains private because you can transfer it to someone and it will be like shielded transaction. You can sell it to someone using atomic swap and this also be like shielded. And then, yes, when someone pulls it out, it becomes public again, but maybe it's totally different, different person now. So you're saying it could be pulled to like a fresh address or something like that. We wouldn't know specifically who it belongs to. Uh, yeah, like of course, people will like suspect that maybe it's still you, but uh, while it's in the pool, you can like transfer it to someone or sell it to someone. Mm-hmm. So I or, the, the, oh yeah, please go. Uh, 
yeah, it also will be possible to prove that your address owns the ape in the shielded pool. So it will be possible like to generate the zero knowledge uh, proof that uh, currently in the shielded pool, the ape is yours. And the, the more you talk about Nova, the more it seems like you could almost look at it as a, I mean, a zero X, but for people who aren't familiar with zero X, basically an entire order book of assets, pools of assets, like a, 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 an entire liquidity provisioning platform just built with zero knowledge integrated into it so that there's privacy for all of the interactions like inside the platform itself. So is that roughly accurate? Uh, yeah, but the main goal here is not to have like very high liquidity like other protocols. Like the, the mere presence, like the mere possibility of atomic swaps, already achieves the main goal of merging the anonymity sets of different assets. Like I'm not sure whether the actual like trading activity will be high or not, but it's not um, very important. Like. Uh, it, it's not very bad if the trading activity will, will be low. It, it's still fine. The main point is that it happens and that's it. Mm. Lower liquidity wouldn't have a higher chance of compromising, like compromising who's doing what? Uh, lower liquidity will probably will just mean higher fees for swaps. Uh, but still, it would still be difficult to de-anonymize through different swaps, like what's going where. Yeah, like if you want to swap USDT to Ether, it will certainly be possible. The difference is at what cost, like uh, how much fee will you have to pay to liquidity providers? Mm -hmm. I understand. Um, okay, very interesting. Uh, that I the. Should I zoom out from that? Yeah, I think I will zoom out from that a bit. Um, in terms of de-anonymization also, so we've, I, mean, I think definitely after the Bitfinex hackers uh, were the, the whole thing, like with the uh, de-ambiguating their, their coin joints went public. So there's been talk about like de-anonymizing private transactions. When transacting with something like Tornado, what do users need to know in order to actually be able to like actually get privacy out of Tornado? Like, are there specific tips that they need in order so that they don't end up de-anonymizing themselves when using the platform? Uh, yeah, it's uh, very easy currently to misuse the privacy protocols and uh, essentially mess up your privacy. Much easier to mess up coin joins than Tornado Cash, but still uh, users need to follow uh, guidelines. So there are simple on-chain stuff like waiting between your deposits and withdrawals. And for example, if you deposit like 28, then Ether nodes and then withdraw 28 Ether nodes to a single address, it's a red flag and like basically common sense tips. Uh, and also a lot of off-chain stuff. So um, your take care of your IP address because it can be tracked between like your old uh, Ethereum transactions and new Ethereum transactions, especially if you use Infura or MetaMask for that matter. Like in MetaMask, all the addresses that are in your MetaMask are use Infura with the same API key. So Infura 
through its API knows sets of addresses that are in the same MetaMask instance. So uh, if you add your new addresses to the same MetaMask instance, Infura knows it. And like many other uh, like chips like this, like for network level, this is one of the reasons that a wallet focused on privacy would be very useful. Interesting. And I guess what would be the big alternative though, I mean, for, for a wallet, like do we all have to run our own node? Uh, running your own node and connecting MetaMask to it is um, a lot of improvement to privacy, but uh, it comes at the cost of worse performance often. And of course you have to run your node. Um, yeah, but uh, there are currently not many very good options. So there is certain demand on the market, but we don't have like very good privacy wallet right now. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Hmm. So and I guess MetaMask for Tor. Like I, I, I'm, I'm just like I guess I'm thinking to myself like what the like what the solution is with the current wallet set. Uh, um, probably, uh, probably Argent does something in this direction, and maybe some other projects I don't know of, but yeah. Mm -hmm. I understand. Um, it, you mentioned multi-chain before. Um, so outside of independent deployments on different chains, um, is there any way for Tornado to kind of take the, the L2 or sidechain paradigm and as a way of increasing privacy or increasing pool size? Uh, there are two different uh, questions there, I guess, like uh, layer two uh, and cross L2 or cross chain stuff. So uh, let's first talk about like layer two stuff. It's a bit easier. So uh, Nova is currently uh, deployed on uh, Gnosis chain. Um, it's probably preferable to deploy on like an L2, but currently all the L2s have not very good user experience in terms of bridges. For optimistic rollups, you have to wait seven days for withdrawal. For ZK rollups, um, it's hard to deploy any anything that has to do with snarks there because uh, they don't support pairing precompiles and you have to implement snarks in very special ways of Blanc and stuff. So uh, it's hard to do both. Um, and in terms of other chains, like Polygon also has three hour withdrawal delay. We wanted to, it to be a seamless experience. So uh, you have mainnet ether deposited to Nova and in the same transaction, it goes to Gnosis chain and into Tornado pool. And when you withdraw, the same happens in the in one transaction. It goes to the bridge on Gnosis site and then to your Ethereum mainnet address. So user never has to switch network and MetaMask. It always looks like he interacting he's interacting with mainnet, but the transactions are cheaper. So uh, deposits and withdrawals are um, a few times 
cheaper and shielded transactions are like less than one cent because they happen entirely on sidechain. Interesting. So that keeps the actual pools on a different chain and basically interactions can still happen from mainnet and it just interact like under the hood is bridging that like the user, so to speak, doesn't even realize that they're transacting on a different chain. Exactly. Yeah. So the smart contract leaves on a side chain, but it makes it looks like uh, it's kind of with mainnet. And on the withdrawal end, also, wow, that's interesting. So even on the withdrawal end, they're hitting a, a mainnet contract, hitting some withdrawal function, then the withdrawal function inside the same transaction. Did you, did you say it's inside the same transaction? It should take one extra. Well, well no? uh, yeah, it's a, like same, like a single user action leads to a transaction on sidechain mm -hmm. and then validators of this sidechain will make the transaction on mainnet. So mm -hmm. technically speaking, the transactions are different, but for, from the point of view of the user, he makes one click or like when he sends Easter, he sends transaction through MetaMask. And when he withdraws, he sends transactions through like UI with the mm -hmm. proofs. Mm -hmm. um, there, there have been protocols. I'm, I'm not an expert on this, so I hope I'm not traveling too far out of my depth. But uh, to my understanding, there have been protocols that have kind of built their own bridge liquidity to make faster bridge transactions. Hop, I believe, is supposed to do that. Um, has, has there been any talk about trying to leverage one of these in order to have kind of like a faster UX between, between other L2s or sidechains? Uh, yeah, this will improve things, but uh, Hop specifically has slippage that is not known at the a moment when the user generates a snark proof. So uh, we want this experience to be like, we want users to get this exact amount of ether that they wanted to withdraw. Like we want to be able to calculate all the fees in advance. So uh, for example, if you want to pay someone 1.39 ether, uh, we want to make sure that the recipient gets exactly this amount. With HOP protocol, there is unknown slippage, so not possible to do it, but uh, probably some other bridges will make it uh, good enough. And uh, we have some ideas how to like basically uh, we have something in like research stage that will also allow to bridge tokens between different layer tools. So uh, in the way that like Nova works with Ethereum mainnet, it can work in similar way between like Polygon and uh, for example, uh, let's imagine Nova smart contracts live on like Arbitrum, for example, and it will be possible to bridge tokens from Binance, Binance Smart Chain, from Polygon, from different rollups and from Mainnet in a similar fashion. So it will make it look that uh, the assets still live on the same chain, but uh, in reality, it, they get transferred to this other layer too when the main instance of Ternada Cash leaves and it will govern assets from all the other chains. Uh -huh. And that would also have the advantage for withdrawal, I would imagine, as in, would that allow with depositing on one chain and withdrawing on another? 
Uh, yeah, but uh, from for example, ether deposited from uh, like Optimism chain will be different from ether deposited from Ethereum mainnet. Uh, so you will have to swap it. Like uh, for example, you deposit BNB from Binance Smart Chain, swap to Ether BNB, and then withdraw it to mainnet. Would there also be arbitrary swap there? Like, would it be possible also for it to then say Ether in from Ethereum mainnet, but then BNB out on on Binance? Yeah, yeah, this is uh, exactly what I was talking about. I, that that should be really powerful privacy wise, no? Because like, and at that point, you really have absolutely no idea, like if there's any correlation between what's in what's out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, will we'll, of course depend on liquidity of the different tokens, but tokens with high enough liquidity will be pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, are there specific problems with the zero knowledge architecture? You mentioned before that for the ZK rollups, it's hard to build snark, um, snark architecture on top of the ZK rollups today. Um, are there other considerations that can make it hard? Uh, did, did I say that wrong? Uh, yeah, uh, so yeah, I understand the question. So uh, we currently use Growth 16, that is pretty old uh, construction. It has some downsides like requiring trusted setup for each circuit independently. But what's good about it is that it's battle tested, uh, as we call it, like trial by TVL. So if high enough value was locked in the protocol for high, a long enough time, uh, it's considered like reliable. Um, currently, the problem with like all the Plonk tool chains, they are pretty good and modern, but uh, they could still like tool chains can still contain some bugs. So we want to see it um, like we want to see someone using them for high enough TVL for long enough time on mainnet because like we are afraid that we can encounter some bugs if we use them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're touching on something which is a big side topic for me, but it is really fascinating for me to see in general um, the speed at which blockchain paradigm enables us to test cryptography. Like to some degree from at least the little that I was familiar with, cryptographic algorithms can be around for a long time. We're still not so sure about them. And of course, that's always going to be the case. But just the fact that we have these platforms that are using nothing but a layer of cryptography to protect all of these funds that are visible to the public kind of enables us to battle test algorithms and different cryptographic scenarios, I would say a lot faster than may have been feasible in the past, which is fascinating to see. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, in terms of Plonk, like uh, ZK Sync is building on it, uh, Aztec is, uh, is building on it. So, uh, once they have uh, enough uh, like volumes, uh, we will also consider moving towards the Plonk proofs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, I guess what you could do is you could just keep on deploying these instances of tornado anywhere. Like once you get to that kind of multi-chain world and it's just like as chains become ready for it, you're able to deploy to them. 
Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, like with the new version of the protocol, the main instance will live only on one chain. So we'll have to select some layer to mm -hmm. secure yeah. uh, enough chain for this. Uh, but uh, Tornado Cache Classic, uh, yeah, is just deployed on the all the chains. Uh, I mean, so it's not set in stone even that kind of the main instance is going to be on Gnosis. That's something that could shift in the future. No, no, it's currently on Gnosis because at the moment it's the best we have. Uh, but for Supernova, no, it's still in, in progress. Like we're still thinking about it. And um, layer two is um, considered usually more secure than uh, layer ones or like side chains, for example, like Polygon, uh, because if implemented correctly, they should inherit uh, most of the security of Ethereum mainnet. So this, this would be the preferred way. Mm -hmm. um, what about non-EVM chains? I, we, we mentioned ZK rollups, which are non-EVM, but um, looking at kind of, I mean, if I was going to name names, I'd say the, the Cosmos ecosystem or Solana or, some, or something like that. Is there a possibility of also seeing something like uh, like Tornado over there? Um, if someone else implements this, yes, but uh, we are not doing it because uh, our team is pretty small and we focus on the development of the new protocol and improving what we have. And like re-implementing all the stuff in new language is a lot of additional work and uh, it also needs to be audited, uh, verified, like supported. But yeah, basically it's some idea for other teams to do something. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I guess, would there be a possibility? I, I, I guess why not for like another team to make a tornado implementation, say in the Cosmos, like in the Cosmos ecosystem and then have that merge in somehow, like also like merge liquidity into the general tornado ecosystem? Like, is that a possibility? Um, not sure how it will work. Um, yeah, uh, if, we, if they figure out how to do it, maybe. Mm -hmm. I understand. Um, and so then maybe actually for a uh, like last series of questions, um, Tornado moved over to a DAO architecture um, for governance. So they released the Torn token and then started making governance decisions by way of DAO. Um, why was it important for Tornado to move to a DAO form of governance? Uh it has to be decentralized. It has to have no like pressure points. Uh, so uh, the good way to do it is to move everything to DAO. And so we like as a contributors uh, like left with just writing the code and doing the research and all the decisions are made by DAO, all the protocol updates, deployments and stuff. Mm -hmm. um is there a specific reason why you went with token governance? Like, was that also just a, a benefit for the working structure of the DAO? What are the other options? It's a good question. Um, I'm not sure that I've seen a token is definitely the most widespread. 
I feel like I've seen a couple of others, but with anything else that I've seen, you kind of have to select specific people from the onset. You have certain people who sit on a council or something like that, and then they get a voting right. I would say would be the... If there are specific people, it's still like they can be targeted or whatever. So it's better to give it to the community. So the airdrop was designed to give tokens to people that used Tarnada Cash before. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So um, basically, uh, users of the protocol uh, have power to make all the future decisions about the protocol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting also, I do feel like Tornado got in before airdrop farming really massively became a thing. Uh, so it probably actually did successfully really organically gift its community there and like build up its governance from inside. Uh, yeah, the airdrop of uh, like airdrop formula for Tornado Cash were constructed specifically to reward earlier adopters like more than uh, later ones. Like there was some exponential function that uh, like people that used it in a few months before airdrop got not much of the tokens, but people that used it early get a lot. It also depended more on the count of transactions rather than volume. So, uh, for example, transaction of 10 Ether, like deposit of 10 Ether, got twice as many tokens as deposit of one Ether, even though it's like 10 times more volume. So uh, it rewarded more for activity and like early adoption. So uh, those users, uh, were more aligned with Tornado Cash values. Interesting. Um, what advantages, like especially unforeseen advantages, have you seen from the DAO structure, if any? Uh, unforeseen advantages? Uh, not sure, like it works as intended. Okay, yeah, that, that, that's definitely also fair. Uh, I mean, we're dealing with novel forms of governance. I'm always curious to see if there was kind of like an unforeseen um, gain. Have there been any specific? Um, oh yeah, sorry, like, go for it. We were a little bit scared at first because uh, for example, um, there were some team tokens in the vesting, but they had no voting power in Tornado Cash governance. So for the first year, Tornado Cash team had zero voice in what Tornado Cash governance can do. <laughs> Like we can only like maybe recommend uh, some stuff or voice our opinion, but no voting power at all. And you're saying it largely turned out fine. Yeah, it, it was a bit scary, but uh, yeah, well, it turned out fine. Hmm. Have, have there been any striking disadvantages to the DAO structure or that's also just, you know, it's worked? Uh, well, it, it makes some things like slower and uh, some proposals don't pass, for example. Um, but uh, in the end, I think it's all for the better. Mm-hmm. And so then maybe as a last question, actually, just to kind of bring it back to a personal note, um, what inspired you to start working on something like Tornado Cash? Um, Vitalik, basically. So uh, we, I worked on, like, I had some... Uh, projects on previous hackathons related to privacy. And then on East Boston, Vitalik did a speech that uh, like uh, privacy 
this is pretty important and let's finally like do it uh he even posted the description of like minimal uh, don't remember the exact name but privacy like infrastructure and uh, we thought that uh well since vitalik posted the like article how to do it and asked about it probably there will be many teams like someone will do it but then one more month passed and nobody basically was doing it so there was some also like story with uh ui development for like privacy but basically uh, one of the main motivations was uh, vitalik's push for private solutions and, and there was a like you know you saw the idea and just decided to kind of take a shot build it out uh yeah so uh we like we knew exactly how to do it how to make a uh, good privacy solution good product and uh we're surprised that nobody else was doing it so we, we just decided let's build it so it took around like three weeks <laughs> to push uh, version so one week i just said had their road snarks and basic smart contracts and then pulled my like the other co-founders and they, they developed uh, ui and we together like pushed it to uh, production ready version polished it wow very nice uh great roman it's been great having you on the podcast thanks